0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. Andrew Pudowa is the director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Boy, is that needed today. He joins us today to talk about writing and education at the present time. Welcome, Mr. Pudua.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's very good to be with you.
0: Let me start with a few writing facts. You know about SAT writing scores, ACT writing scores as well. In spite of all the emphasis on verbal skills in, in No Child Left Behind and, and Common Core and state standards, they just keep going down. What is your explanation for that steady deterioration in the last 15-plus years?
1: Yeah, or maybe we could say the last 50 years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In in uh, in 1990, uh, Myra Linden and Arthur Wimby wrote a book called Why Johnny Can't Write. It was part of the Why Johnny Can't Do Anything Anymore series. And they documented with, with primary sources, Carnegie Institute studies, that writing had been in decline for 20 years before that. That was 1990, 30 some years ago. So I think, you know, nobody's gonna argue anything's improved since then. So we're on a a half a century here of decline in the writing skills objectively of high school graduates. Um, But, you know, I think it extends far else. So why? Well, Certainly there are many contributing factors. One would be almost the direct inverse relationship between the rise of internet-based entertainment, social media, gaming, computer, screen time, and reading. People just don't read anymore. In fact, I saw a statistic, you may have a better source on this, that over two-thirds of high school students in this country have not read one single book. In the last year and that that's a frightening idea um and you know if if you're not getting high quality of language and sophisticated thought into the brain it's going to be really hard to get anything resembling that out of the brain so it's partly i think just an input problem and of course we see you know parents and aware good teachers they're they're fighting against this they're trying to keep you know a literature rich environment for kids but kids these days just don't see why should i read that seems dumb and uh you know so that's that's one of the big problems and then the second thing we could address address depending on where you want to go is uh the approach to teaching writing in the last 50 years or so has shifted very much from what we might call a traditional or even a classical approach based on imitation, modeling, knowing grammar, doing exercises to an emphasis on creative writing and self-expression. And the whole purpose of writing is to flow your own ideas onto paper and uh, delight in that. So uh, it, it, that, that has certainly caused a decline in basic skills competence as well.
0: Do you see any effort? I mean, as things keep getting worse in the, just the last few years, to adjust those uh, teaching writing approaches?
1: Yeah, I think we're seeing a division in 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 schools. If you were to put them into two broad categories, uh, a smaller number of schools, but growing, are the schools that are realizing the progressive approach to curriculum has failed, reading, writing, basic calculation is gone. And so now what do we do? We need to you know, look at what did we used to do when people could read better and write better and knew their multiplication tables and could do basic algebra without a calculator. Uh, and then the rest of the schools, they've kind of given up on standards and are putting their faith in technology. That somehow, if we get more tablets and pads and pods and Chromebooks into the classroom, that's going to solve our education problems. Which, of course, it won't. Uh, we see this division. Uh, nobody's talking about standards anymore. I haven't heard any teacher or administrator say anything about oh, our state standards, oh, Common Core. Uh, you know, even districts—they—they—it's a non-issue because it's failed so badly for so long. And now we see this division between schools that are leaning more traditional and classical and schools that are going to depend on technology. Uh, So it's an interesting world, but the good news is there's more schools and more teachers and more administrators and more parents waking up to the fact that we need to look backward and say, what did we used to do when everyone was more well-educated? rather than believe that the progressive have some kind of market on improvement.
0: Uh, What does the Institute for Excellence in Writing do?
1: So we publish uh, curricular materials pertaining to the arts of language, which we would define as listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. So we work uh, kind of at the very beginning by promoting the idea of reading out loud to children in huge quantity. Uh, We have a poetry memorization program to help children store language patterns by memorizing good and great poetry. We have an early reading and writing program. We have a spelling program, but most of what we do pertains to the teaching of grammar and English composition. We have um, mostly uh video materials for teacher and parent training as well as student videos and then books that teachers can use if they don't want to use videos in the classroom and it's all based on one basic system of teaching structural models and stylistic techniques in a very organized and consistent way
0: very good Let me ask a biographical question. You didn't come into education in the customary way. How did you end up an expert on writing and learning?
1: (laughs) Well, it could be debated whether I'm an expert on that, but I do have, you know, almost three decades of experience. So, yeah, I didn't uh, study English or or education. Uh, I actually am a violin teacher by primary training, and I spent three years in Japan studying with Dr. Suzuki of the Suzuki Method, which some of our listeners may be uh, familiar with, and uh, I kind of just stumbled into a small school that needed people to teach stuff, and my, my first year teaching, it was kind of like, well, whatever anybody can do, we'll make it work. So uh, I taught music, I taught PE, I taught a very rudimentary form of computer programming, and I taught um, an, an English class. And uh, I went to that summer, after that first year at that school, which was in Montana, I went with uh, all of our teachers up to Northern Alberta and I took a 10-day course called the Blended Sound Type Program of Learning, where I found this structure and style approach to teaching English composition. And I realized, wow, this is parallel to Suzuki method of music instruction, based on imitation, based on mastery, based on a graded progression of complexity, based on consistency over time, And I just thought, hey, uh, I understand the philosophy behind this. I learned the mechanics, you know, the technique of teaching it. And then over years, I got pretty good at teaching it. Um, My kids were getting great results. And um, I, I started teaching other teachers how to do it. And that segued into a pretty successful business at this point.
0: I should say my son started with the Suzuki at age seven, and uh, we spent nine years going through the books and doing the summer institutes in different parts of the country. Parents love the Suzuki program, and here here's the funny thing about it. The kids love it as well, but, Andrew, it is a rigid, fully laid out, no exceptions, and it's the best. I mean, you've got Mozart, you have Bach in there. You you you've got Schubert. You have all all the greats. But it is it, it's one of the most uh, rigid curricula I've I've ever seen, and it's wonderful. It, it is <laughs> it is fantastic. So I I I, I I I envy you having been able to actually study with with with, with the founder, Doctor Suzuki himself. Next question. You mentioned going to the the education conference uh, in 2017. You had an article entitled "Low Tech Teaching with High End Results," and it begins with what you commonly saw at education conferences at that time, uh, and and since in so many of them, that is all the technology. It, it, it's gung ho. It, it is so much oriented toward technology the attitude toward screens and keyboards no no rising skepticism about that that you see these days or is it, is there too much money in in that you know is that the issue
1: well yes I, I would say so i mean there is skepticism but it's you know it it's a marginalized skepticism and it is money. If you were to look at major contributors in education, you would find in there the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Well, you know, what are they going to contribute to? <laughs> right. If if their uh, fortune is invested in, in high tech, they're going to push it. But, you know, technology is interesting. It's not particularly new. There's always been technologies. I'm reminded of, um, I believe it was in Plato's dialogue, uh, The Phaedrus, where Socrates tells the story of the king of Egypt and the great god Thoth. And the great god Thoth says to the king of Egypt, here, I'm going to give you all of these gifts of technology and it's going to make everybody's life better. And among those was writing. And the king of Egypt said, well, great god Thoth, obviously, we're going to take your gift because you're the great god Thoth. But this this gift of yours of writing will be a two edged sword. It will allow us to record things, but it will also uh, take us away from memory. It will erode our skill of remembering and we will trust to the written characters rather than our mind. And so I think that's a good analogy for what we see in modern technology. And that is this idea that, well, we don't really need to know anything anymore because we have access to so, You can always look it up. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, if you don't know when the American Civil War was, well, just ask your phone, and it will tell you the exact day on which it began and ended. But, of course, the problem is uh, you have to use kind of a reductio ad absurdum there. If, if you don't know that, and you don't know something else, and you know less and less and less, and pretty soon you don't know much at all, you don't even know there was an American Civil War, and you can't even ask the question question of your phone and so there is this uh, awareness in a lot of people that i'm meeting that we we may be cutting off our own feet here in terms of teaching kids that they don't have to know things they don't have to know how to calculate why should you have to memorize the multiplication tables or geometric you know formulas none of that's useful in the real world anyway Why would you have to know how to write? You have a spell checker and a grammar checker, and now we've got AI, so you really don't need these skills. But what's the logical end of humans not being able to do that?
0: You know, uh, you you mentioned the the low-tech teaching. What was your low-tech teaching? Better results than high-tech teaching? At least in terms of writing.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact... um, There was a book, and it was so many years ago now, 15 years ago probably, entitled, if I get my my subtitles correct, um, it was called uh, The Flickering Mind by, I believe, Todd Oppenheimer. He was a Wall Street Journal journalist, and he traveled for a year and visited um, high-tech schools and low-tech schools, and magnet schools, and special charter schools, and Montessori schools, and Waldorf schools, and and yeah. in his book he he doc
0: I read it when it when it came out it was it was very good very well done
1: but he found an exact inverse uh relationship the more computers in a classroom the lower the reading skills the writing skills and the calculation skills of the students and that hasn't changed
0: he would show some scenes where the teacher would be up front the kids would all be on the laptops open and he would be in the back of the room as an observer, and he wanted to say, uh, teachers, do you know what's going on? <laughs> I can see their screens. You can't. Anyway, go, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Well, we've solved that problem now because now the teacher can have special software that tells the teacher exactly what all the students are doing on their screen. Right. So, you know, with enough surveillance, we can control all of society, even kids yeah. in the classroom. <laughs> right but you know i think his point was very interesting in that where did you see the highest levels of basic skills were in the zero tech schools like montessori and waldorf and he pointed out yeah. that the the silicon valley execs themselves minimize screens in the lives of their own children while they're That's busy right. push, pushing screens and addictive software to the rest of the world. So there is a, right. a bit of hypocrisy going on there.
0: Yeah, and I, I think there's, I mean, in terms of writing, I think the, the research finding is pretty solid now fully accepted that taking notes in a lecture by hand, pencil and paper, uh, yields better retention, better, better comprehension and retention in the material than taking notes on a keyboard. And, and it's significant.
1: Yeah, in fact, that was a big, big, I think you, you and I probably both read that same study. And uh, one of the things that I found very interesting about the analysis of the data was that they hypothesized that the students taking notes on paper weren't able to put as many words on paper as fast as the students who were typing almost verbatim, which meant they had to listen better and think more. About what was important, and right. filter the information, and that that gave a better level of comprehension on a post-test.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, uh, I, I I banned laptops. Oh gosh, fifteen years ago from from my classroom. Uh, said said, forget it. Now now we we bumped into one another a few times at classical education gatherings. Is your approach? Fully congenial with a classical curriculum and pedagogy?
1: Yes, I would say absolutely. We don't necessarily use the same classical terminology as some people do, say, when they're pushing the progymnasmata uh, exercises or this idea of classical rhetoric and all the terminology that goes there. but. We also uh, you know, target younger children as well to help them overcome the basic problems of writing. And uh, if you think about, okay, the, the five canons of rhetoric uh, generally are listed as invention, arrangement, elocution, memory, and delivery. We don't worry much about memory and delivery because we're not as concerned with public speaking today as they were, say, in ancient Greece. But we still have these three problems invention what to say arrangement what order to say it in and elocution how to express the idea and so our system we call it structure and style which translates almost exactly into arrangement and elocution and then we address the problem of invention which is coming up with something to say in a very in in a system very similar to the ancient rhetoric exercises of the progymnasmata.
0: How important are memorization and recitation in an English classroom? Do they make for better writing?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, this is kind of one of my my uh, stumps I like to preach on. Um, one of the things we would note about kids is that uh, their vocabulary is very much received um, in their you know, earlier period, primarily through listening. And they they hear words, they hear conversations with parents, they hear um, storybooks and, and books, hopefully, that are read to them. Uh, some, some children have access to audiobooks. Uh, but if a child does not hear a word, there's very little chance that he's ever going to be able to use the word. But a lot of times, words will kind of stick in the passive vocabulary so yeah i i've heard that word i kind of know what it means i know what it means well enough to read the sentence and get the gist of it but to use a word and to use it well you have to have a much crisper definition in your mind you have to have experience of producing that word in context and one of the best if not the best way to move vocabulary from passive into active use is through memorization and recitation. And again, we can go back right. to the ancient, ancient world. If you went to study rhetoric, one of the things you would be spending a lot of time on is memorizing the great poetry that came before you, trying to write things to imitate that, uh, studying the speeches of people that came before you. Um, memorizing chunks of of history, uh, not just because, you know, paper was non-existent and written things were expensive and hard to come by and the main mode of transfer was verbal transfer, but in studying and memorizing language, you build that active vocabulary in a way it's really hard to do in any other way. And, uh, you know, people today say, "Well, I got a, you know, a thesaurus kind of thing. I can go to, you know, thesaurus.com. I can ask my phone. But there's, that's really not a substitute for intimately knowing words, how they've been used dozens or hundreds of times before in the precedent of language and the connection with the history of ideas that you get through memory.
0: You speak in another essay of asking kids to work with words in the same way that they handle Legos. What do you mean by that?
1: (laughs) Oh Well, you know, it gets back to, if you will, your point about Suzuki method being a very, very structured approach to teaching something. And um, I have had many parents say to me, oh, you know, as I watch my child, you know, do your writing program, you know, make the keyword outlines, put the keyword outlines into sentences, put in the stylistic techniques, uh, you know, follow the topic clincher rule, it's almost like they have pieces and they're putting them all together to get a product. And so there is an analogy that way. If you if you have uh, pieces and you have a plan, you can then put those pieces together and come out with something pretty cool. If you just have a bunch of pieces and no plan or, or, or worse, you just have a great blob of play And no experience in what to do with that, you don't get something that's very attractive or enjoyable out the other side. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the way we've taught English uh, composition in particular in this country for 40, 50 years is just kind of giving kids a blob of clay and say, here, just, you know, play with the clay. And if you do this long enough for enough years, you'll learn how to do stuff out of clay. But we're not providing for them the model. We're not providing for them a method. We're not providing for them the tools they need to form that into something beautiful.
0: And 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 Andrew, it's one reason why. I mean, I can tell you that one of the least popular classes in higher education ever since I started teaching in, in the late 1980s in freshman composition is precisely that that writing class. They they dread it. They, they 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 hate having to take it. Writing is they're so turned off by it. And I think one reason is what you just what you just said—the way they've been taught writing, and maybe the way the way they've been tested on on their writing. I mean, do you have any reservations about standardized tests in writing?
1: I think the very best way to do a standardized test in writing is don't tell anyone that you're going to do it Hmm. you know it's that principle of if you tell a teacher or a parent that you're going to test a child they will then try to reverse engineer the test and say okay how do we uh how do we mechanically produce a result that will look good on this test whereas if you were to use a system that works and do a before and after test unbeknownst to, you know, the teachers who are teaching, you could then get, I think, a fair evaluation of the effectiveness of what's been done. And uh, so so it's kind of like that that uh, principle that as soon as you observe something, it changes its behavior. Uh, As soon as you um, Know that you're going to test children in a particular way. You will change your behavior in teaching. So one of the things I suggest, Mark, and if there's any teachers out there, this is something I've done many times. I've recommended it many times is you, you want a qualitative analysis and nobody likes qualitative analysis because you can't stick them into a spreadsheet and they don't make nice little, you know, percentages.
0: It takes time. It's a little more expensive to, to do. Yeah.
1: Okay, so let's say you're teaching kids or let's say you're homeschooling or somewhere in between and you start the year in August and you give your kids a prompt and you say, "Okay, write about your home. You got 20 minutes. Ready, set, go. Set the timer and ignore them for 20 minutes. And beam, you're done. Take the paper they wrote. Don't even read it. You won't get any good information from reading it. Just throw it in a folder, bury it in a file cabinet and then start teaching through the year with a system that you believe will get a good result. And do that for a year, and then the last week or so of school, give the kids the exact same prompt with the exact same amount of time, and say, you know, here, write about your home, 20 minutes, ignore them for 20 minutes, beep, time's up, pull the paper out of the file cabinet, hand it back to the kids, and let them look at the before and after, and then you can look at the before and after. And, and by that measure, you should be able to say, did this child improve in their use of words, in their correctness of grammar, in their fluency, in the volume, in the uh, creativity of the ideas, of the, the variety of, of sentence structure? And if the answer is yes, well then you have a successful writing method. If the answer is not really, well, you better rethink something but we we haven't, actually done that, we have a completely disordered assessment system that instead of comparing children with themselves over time, we're comparing children with each other based on age. What possible good information can you get from from data like that?
0: Is that system of instruction what the Institute for Excellence in Writing provides for schools and teachers?
1: Well, that is exactly what Our mission is, is to equip parents and teachers with methods and materials that will help cultivate the arts of language, listening, speaking, reading, and writing in students of all ages. So, I mean, that's our stated mission. Does it work? Well, I've got, you know, if I kept them all and printed them out, I'd have a stack of testimonials taller than my ceiling here of parents and teachers who said, wow, this is really work. This is remarkable. Probably the most common thing, Mark, that happens to me is I every single place I go, I will meet a parent or sometimes a kid who did our system for two, three, four years, maybe longer. And then they go off to college and they write their first college paper and they get an A. And the professor will very often say something like, wow, you know, where did you learn to do this? And the kid's like, I don't know. I just, you know, my mom taught me. It's what I learned in school. I don't know where I, I don't know. And yeah. what they are amazed at is all their peers who are so um, afraid of writing and don't know the first thing about how to begin research or how to out- outline a paper and then how to write prose that's engaging.
0: They are afraid. They're at a loss. You know, they're not quite sure what they're doing as they're writing. Last thing, uh, Andrew, what is the website of the Institute for Excellence in Writing? Tell people this in case they're interested
1: i.e.w.com, simple.
0: i.e.w.com,
1: three-letter domain. Yeah, i.e.w.com.
0: Very good. Uh, well, uh, thank you, Andrew Pudua, for joining us. We might see you again in a year.
1: I would enjoy that very much, and I respect your work and first things. And I hope that we meet at a conference and can have a little more leisurely discussion there as well. God bless you.
0: Thank you.